Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Come on! Hey guys, welcome to The Tapping Go. My name is Matt. My name is Freddie. Each week we bring you your rugby fix with interviews with past and present rugby professionals and we get their views on the latest sporting issues. Today we are very lucky to have Ugo Monier. Not only has he played for England and the Lions and until most recently was Harlequins' top try scorer, but he's also a world-class pundit these days. How are you doing, Ugo? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Thanks a lot for having me on. Good yeah, to see sure. you guys. So... I- so I guess the return of rugby is a hot topic these days with um, New Zealand coming back this weekend, Australia on the 3rd of July and soon after the Premiership. How do you think it's going to all unfold? Yeah, um, I think we'd have all liked to see rugby come back in this country a, a little bit sooner, of course, but mm. goes without saying that health and safety is paramount and no one wanted a sport to come back and then put a, a burden on, on the NHS, on our health workers and key workers. But in a slightly perverse way, it's almost been good to sit back and learn lessons from other sports. Um, I watched the first game to come back um, for the Bundesliga and it, it felt weird. You know, I think everyone's understanding that times are different and sport will look different, but understanding that the first Bundesliga match quite clearly had no crowds, but also had no crowd effects as well. And they've learned those lessons in the last few weeks so inject crowd noise we've seen that happen in the MRL and I think it just adds a huge amount to people's view and pleasure so it's um, we, I feel like we're in a privileged position so hopefully when rugby's back up and running we're able to be able to put out the very best product that we can. Mm. So in a recent article you wrote you said that rugby union should see this enforced break as a chance to completely hit the reset button I was wondering whether you could just elaborate a little bit more like what you're now expecting what you meant by that. Um, I think it's quite easy and understandable when you look at the nature of a game which is so draining so physical so many matches and the cyclical nature of not ever really having a chance to, to fully assess and make major changes if necessary we, we for, forever see minor amendments whether it's to the law um, the, the law book or whatever it might be but for me, I just see it as a real opportunity just to focus on where this game is at. It's been professional now for 25 years. What have we done well uh, and what can we do better? Um, from a financial standpoint, um, the game's on its knees, as are many industries and businesses around the mm. world. Rugby's no different. We don't have the financial clout or muscle, which football, football does, and, and they're a sport which is still struggling. So... We've seen plenty written about salary cap and salary cap recommendations. In fact, it was just this week that the salary cap's now been reduced to £6 million. So I think from a financial standpoint and a business element that we can be better. But also from a place perspective, and this has got nothing to do with the law book, I think we slightly got complacent um, 
and some behaviours which wouldn't align itself with rugby values start to creep into our game, whether it's back chat to the referee, whether it's goading players and you know, it's the, the game of rugby is a great game, but it's we, we can't forget the people at the heart of it, and it's the fans. And there was certain incidents and moments which were becoming far too frequent within our game, which wasn't making it as enjoyable to be able to watch. And I'm I'm, I'm retired. I'm a fan now, um, as much as I'm a pundit. And I just thought those small behaviours crept into our game. So I'm I'm, I'm glad, or I'm certainly hopeful that some of those things actually get eradicated and then you can talk about the global calendar which I'm pretty sure will will come into play. Um, I want to see more meaningful matches and that's from an international point. Um, traditionally we start the season six weeks of rugby and all of a sudden we've got internationals and you're like why? Yeah. Why? I, I, it, it just happened because it just happened. I think what we're going to see going forward is a dedicated period within the calendar for the international game and, and for me that, that makes perfect sense so that everyone feels like they're in the same boat and instead of institutions clubs and governing bodies being self-serving I think it's an opportunity where we're actually looking as to how we can move forward for the betterment of the game not just for what might be good for England or Wales or New Zealand or South Africa and that kind of collective cohesive approach I think will certainly make our game a lot better and a lot stronger. Yeah. Yeah. With, that, with that international bit, do you mean sort of international fixtures or international club fixtures where Southern Hemisphere clubs play Northern Hemisphere clubs? International fixtures at the starting point, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if we at some point see international club fixtures. I think there's um, I think there's a hunger for it. Um, we see it in Super League, the World Club Championship, don't we? And it's it's massive. You know, you want to know who's the best club team in the world. You, you just do. It's, you know, there'll be loads of polls and podcasts and articles if you could assimilate the best team in the world. Imagine if the Crusaders of old played against Leinster, who would win? And those have forever been hypothetical questions. Well, wouldn't it be great if that was a reality? Mm -hmm. and I'm not advocating lumping on a load more fixtures into what's already congested calendar. And like I've already said, more meaningful fixtures. And if that means getting rid of certain competitions, the A-League, I, I just don't think it's a, a league which thrives. I'm talking about the second tier, it's the second team league that doesn't quite thrive. The LV Cup or the Anglo-Welsh Cup has never really thrived because you have an English league who are able to compete on three different competitions. But in Wales, they don't have the same firepower. And when I watch matches, and I think it was Exeter against Ospreys a couple of seasons back, and they're getting whacked 50-odd points to nil or 50-odd points to seven. Like The one element of sport that I love is it being a competition. And a scoreline like that reflects there is no tension, there is no narrative, there is no competition. So get rid of those kind of games and let's bring in more meaningful matches. Yeah. Out of interest, who do you think would win between Crusaders and Leinster? <laughs> well, of course, I, I've got a slight unconscious bias because I spend <laughs> most of my time watching European rugby. Um, mm. I think Leinster are a phenomenal side. I, I really do. Um, there's lots of factors which would potentially determine the outcome. Where was it played? Where was the game played? If it was yeah. in the Northern Hemisphere in November, probably get the back Leicester all day. But yeah. then they have the ability in, in the summer months to be equally as good. But to answer your question, um, I, I'm going to say Leicester, but then I might be surprised when I watch Super Rugby <laughs> next week. We'll be doing you complete injustice if we didn't talk a little bit about your career since we've got you here. So one okay. of the main things about you was that you played seven, both 7s and 15s professionally. And so I was wondering whether you could give us a little bit of insight into sort of the differences that you have to adapt to playing between the two games. Obviously, it's quite, they're very different. Yeah, I mean, can I quickly, how old are you two? 18. Both 18. 18. Brilliant. So I was age 19 playing on the World 7 Series. I was, I was a year older than you guys. I, I just finished school, finished school, had a, had a year in the Harlequins Academy. And all of a sudden, you're getting on planes and you're turning left and you're like, hang on a minute. It's quite nice there, isn't it? You know, you're in business class traveling the world. Um, first tournament was in Australia. 
So I think by the age of 21, I'd pretty much travelled the world playing rugby, which was like, whoa, this is insane. And I guess sevens back when I played, we used it, or the RFU used it as a pathway for success into the Premiership and then on to playing for England. So to be exposed to large stadiums, travelling, being part of the team was was a steep learning curve, but it certainly accelerated my learning. But then kind of oscillated between sevens and fifteens, then became um, quite tricky in itself. You go from playing at the Hong Kong sevens in front of 40,000 people, scoring tries for fun, loads of space, then you're back into the premiership where it's like hammering it down the brain and thinking you can score a try from 18 metres when actually it's probably best you just kick it. So um, they are, of course, they're transferable skills, but they are entirely different games. Mm. And I just wonder, because of the financial restrictions or constraints on the RFU, whether they go back to the model of using it as a pathway and giving younger guys an opportunity. But it was an unbelievable time in my career, which most definitely helped me develop the necessary skills I needed in the 15s. Yeah. Do you have a favourite tournament by chance? On the circuit? Hong Kong. Hong, Hong Kong. Kong is just, you know, I was, I, I watched the Hong Kong Sevens, like when I was at school, guys like Sarevi, um, Eric Rush back in the day, another all black legends. Um, so, to, to watch it on TV and then be on the same pitch of same pitch as them was was a unique experience in itself. Let alone like forty thousand screaming, wildly drunk fans. It was it was everything I thought it might be, and, and absolutely more. Um, it's an iconic, iconic arena. It's an iconic tournament. Um, so to go there, and I was lucky enough to win that tournament a couple of times and we actually had a World Cup in Hong Kong so that was just remarkable I think now I'm retired the only thing I want to do is just go back as a fan and just be in the South Stand for three days and just sit back and just enjoy everything which happens on the pitch but Hong Kong Sevens is one of those places where it's just as much entertaining on the pitch as it is in the stands it's a proper festival of rugby mm. yep. obviously in 2011 you won the premiership with Harlequins and right until recently you were their leading try scorer but when you retired I think you scored two in your final game which did that take, just take you over the top um, so what was it like being part of such a successful dressing room are there any stories that we would like to hear <laughs> Plenty of stories, uh, but plenty you probably can publish. Uh, <laughs> I was really lucky to be part of what I felt was an incredible squad, but I think people look at some of the success we had and just focus on that. But the thing for me which made the successes so sweet were some of the trials and tribulations we had as a collective. Because I look at that winning side in 2012 and we all grew up together. You know, imagine you guys now leaving school, finishing your A-levels, being part of a team and then growing up and then winning stuff. That feeling of being in the changing room, looking around and knowing you've all put in the hard yards. We were the same team that got relegated in 2005. We were the same team that had to go through Bloodgate in 2009. Um, And so... It wasn't always an easy path, but um, I don't think you ever want anything too easy in life. You don't want anything given to you. You certainly want to feel as if you've earned it and worked for it. And we certainly felt as if we did that. But that day was one of the most special days of my career. Um, and people ask me the favourite moment of the day, and it wasn't actually lifting the trophy. That was, of course, emotional and relief as well as it was excitement. But as I've kind of already said, going into the change room, just shutting the door. Like, I'm in the media now and we want to stick cameras and microphones everywhere under people's chin as you're running off and your heart rate's at 200. Tell us how you feel, compose yourself. So to be able to shut the door, block everyone out and just be there, present with everyone that's contributed to that success was just the best feeling in the world. I mean, the night out was, was incredible. Um, my two best mates... Uh, Danny Kerr and Jordan Turner Hall were probably 
in the minority of single lads within the squad. And we had uh, an after party at Kensington Roof Gardens. We rocked up and it was nice and everyone was, you know, so high on life. But everyone was there with their girlfriend. So we were happy to consume as much drink as we could, quite possibly physically able to, to get down us. But then we knew it was our time to venture into the West End as the three amigos and, and explore, explore and indulge in the delights which the, the bright lights of London can give you. So we had just the most unbelievable night together. Didn't get into late, I'm not advocating this, but this is what we did. Didn't get into late, um, woke up, had a bacon sandwich, and then it was a case of bang, fancy dress. We met up a few hours later and then, yeah, continued, continued our partying. Um, had to sober up, then went on England tour to South Africa. And at the end of that, we then all flew to Las Vegas to celebrate again. <laughs> so so we, we did do it properly. And I, I think yeah. you absolutely have to. I'm five years retired now. And I don't miss rugby. I don't miss waking up on a Sunday feeling like I've been in a car crash. But I, bit, I miss the moments that you have celebrated with your friends. That's mm. the one thing that will forever remain with you. I don't know it's cliche, medals and trophies will tarnish, but the memories will forever be so present. And when people ask me about rugby, I don't often talk about, oh, this was a great moment, that medal, that trophy, whatever. But it's... It's this silliness. You guys know what it's like. You know, when, when you get together and you're just giddy and you are just being pals. That's the best bit of playing rugby. Mm. Mm. Sorry to bring you down from this pie, but you mentioned Bloodgate there. As <laughs> <of> like, <laughs> um, but obviously, that would have had a massive impact on the squad and the club as a whole. Just as a squad, how do you go about dealing with that and then rebuilding? It, it, was, it was really tough. Um, I was actually in... South Africa, I was on the Lions Tour, South Africa, and I didn't really get how big the story was because, of course, you're just focused on what you're doing, and the majority of the ports of rugby was focused on that. It wasn't until you came back home, and like anything in the press, the minute there's not a lot to talk about in sport, the sporting season's effectively finished, you've got to find out stuff to talk about. So, this became a huge story. Um, I remember speaking to someone at Sky Sports and they said if the England football team won the World Cup, we would run the story above above that. That's how big it is. And, you know, it's still one of the biggest scandals in rugby. Um, how did it affect us? I don't think we realised how deeply it affected us for, for probably about a year. Um, you know, there was certain frustrations that I felt, I know we all felt, where, whereby... You finish training, you're walking down the street in Harlequin's kit and people who don't really know about rugby now know about rugby, but for all the wrong reasons. And that was tough. Um, as a squad, we had to be really tight, you know, guys at the heart of it because, you know, good men and women lost their jobs. Um, uh, people got made redundant. It, you know, it was heartbreaking. But, you know, you can't... <sighs> You can't just sit and wallow and be defined by moments like that. You've got to use them as a way and a means to be able to prove people wrong and come back. And it will, of course, be a part of Harlequin's history. But I think in every moment where we've had setbacks, relegation I've already mentioned, we've used it as inspiration to, to step up and bring back some positivity to, to ourselves, to our fans, to the rugby community, to the game. And I think Harlequin's certainly gone on to achieve that. So I guess moving on to the Lions Tour of 2009, you were part of the squad, played twice. What was that like? Uh, best experience of my life. Like, best rugby experience of my life, like, hands down. But, you know, I've only been on one Lions Tour. I speak to, like, true legends of the game. And O'Driscoll, O'Connell, Ron O'Gara, Stephen Jones, Mike Williams. All those guys are, like, near 100 plus, if not more. And they've been on multiple line stores and they'll forever say that was their favourite tour. It was probably, it was also probably the last tour where um, social media didn't have an influence and mm. there wasn't an, uh, a huge invasion into your day-to-day -day routines. They weren't, we were lucky enough that we could 
do the things we wanted to do without people shoving camera phones in your face and journalists out there hunting for stories. Um, we were part amateur and really enjoyed ourselves and spent a good time together getting to know one another and have nights out and celebrating and mourning, um, mourning certain games. But then, you know, as a, as a series, it was, it, it, it was incredible. If you've not been to Africa, go, go. If you've not toured there, travel. Um, of course, we've got the Lions series next year and that would just be the most phenomenal experience. It, um, it was a country that was enthralled in it, um, totally enveloped in it. But, but then also it was such a, a big missed opportunity as well. So there's a part of you just like, oh, what could have been? Because I think the 09 line, so the 09 South African side was probably the greatest South African side they've had. Um, they'd beaten, I think, New Zealand three times in the year. They were Tri Nations champions. They were World Cup winners. And they were at home. Um, so it was, a, it was an incredible experience for myself. Not all the moments were great moments, but, but yeah, one that I'll never forget. Mm. You talk about the negative to the press there, and obviously that in this year's Six Nations, the Ellis Genges interview, that really shone through. Whereas if he'd done that 10 years ago, he, I think he did he swear once on camera and had a beer in his hand. He received so much hate for that. Yeah, I, I found it remarkable because as a game, I think we're really inclusive. Um, but then I think that moment once again challenged it. Are we or are we? Because... What did Genji do that was so outrageous? I'm not sure. Was it his accent, the way he spoke, um, the beer in his hand? Like, what part of it was so incredibly offensive? Like, Ellis is proud of who he is and where he comes from and what he stands for. And I think we need more characters like that. There's no, there's no need to sanitise our game. Yeah. You know, there would be. The fact is, the Premiership in European rugby, we get hundreds of thousands of people watching it. But the Six Nations, there's millions. So we have a, a great captive audience, people from all walks of life that have been in the pubs, watching it, drinking beers alongside him, thinking he looks and sounds just like me. And he's an inspiration to, to, to many. So, you know, it, it was a bizarre one. But then I think... The sport um, has evolved, uh, perception is changing, but still there's a lot of people that either watch a sport or part of the game that still are fairly narrow-minded, because um, mm. I love Ellis. And if <laughs> I'd much prefer to sit down and interview Ellis, who tells me exactly what he thinks, than interview someone who's pretty dull and doesn't mm. say anything at all. So. I don't know, I guess horses for courses. Yeah, I mean, he just won the game for England and then just go to receiving hate two days later. It just seems so ridiculous. You know, you get a load of stick whenever you play against Scotland. In the build-up to it, it's a war of words. It was a minging day, hammered it down of rain. You come off the bench, score a try, and you beat Scotland in Scotland, especially after what's happened the last two years. Yeah. 38 all at Twickenham, the year before that, where we had our pants pulled down in Murrayfield. Guys got every reason to be thrilled. I don't care how you express yourself, just be happy for it. Yeah. So I guess talking um I guess also in the Six Nations, there was the incident with Joe um with Joe Marler on Alan Wynne Jones. I guess what what do you what's your thought on this? Um I love Joe. I love Joe. <laughs> and it's tough because people that don't know Joe. Um, we'll just judge him on one incident, one moment. But with that, there's, there's no real context. I, I'm not excusing what he did, but when you know someone, I think it's easier to be able to back someone. Um, um, the incident, of course, you, no one's advocating or promoting it. And, and Joe put his hands up and you know he, he said he did wrong. Um, and I guess I've probably altered it to a certain extent, you know, that kind of behaviour don't, don't want to really see in rugby if kids are watching whatever like that. But I love Joe. Um, I, I spoke to him about it. He was, he said, I mean, he, he's been on tour of Alan Wynne Jones. He was trying to, he, he was trying to have a bit of fun. He wasn't trying to incite a reaction or a response. You know, he was, 
he said in his own way, he was actually trying to defuse the situation. And sometimes, you know, you can get you can get it wrong. Sometimes you totally can get it wrong. And I think he puts his hand up to it. But knowing Joe, um, I, I'm happy to defend him. But then I also understand as to why people were frustrated and annoyed. But we live in an era now, especially in the social media world, where you have to be offended and you have to be outraged and enraged. And I totally get as to why some people would be. But then I've got a different side on Joe because I've known him since he was 15 years old. But do you think 10 weeks was too harsh punishment? I mean, it actually hasn't come to anything, but... Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, World Rugby had to do something. They, they, they had to. They had to because it's, it was a trial by social media, wasn't it? The minute yeah. you get loads of tweets and it becomes viral and Piers Morgan's talking about it on Good Morning Britain, then you've, you've got to do something. You've got to do something, you know. It's, it's, it's in, it's, and the other thing is, it's actually in the law book as well, um, which and I've spoken to referees who actually weren't quite aware of it. So the moment you see in the law book and, and the outrage from it, then something had to be done. Um, I'm glad from, from his perspective that he's been able to have time to reflect and those 10 weeks have obviously gone and passed and he's just recently signed a contract extension with Harlequin. So... It's good to good to see that he's still part of our game. Yeah. I guess a recent World Cup in Japan and England fell short in the finals. What what do you think sort of stopped them from going all the way? Um, I actually did some research on this because I think we got slightly blinded by how brilliant England were in New Zealand. It's one of the most complete performances I've seen of England in almost forever. It was just incredible. Um, New Zealand have been the best sporting team in the last decade. And I'm talking Tiddlywinks, badminton, squash, football. They have been there. Um, they've set the benchmark. I guess part of, part of any game, any duel is, I think we forgot about, when I say we, I'm talking, not talking about the players, I'm thinking the public forgot about South Africa to a certain extent. And I remember speaking to Sia Kalise about this. And he just told me that there was no way in his eyes he felt they were going to lose. Um, they didn't spend a huge amount of time on the training pitch. And I think in sport nowadays, the one thing that can set teams apart is just your reason for, your reason for being, like what you're playing for. And I felt their reason for wanting to, to win in terms of bringing hope to a nation, uniting a nation, it's just an incredibly powerful force. Not saying that the England boys weren't motivated, but it's hard to compete with, with that reason. Mm. It's hard to compete with that cause. And you could see it, how it manifested itself in some of their defence. But also, you then look at England's route to the final. How to beat Australia, um, how to beat New Zealand, how to beat South Africa. I think the last time England beat the, the Southern Hemisphere nations in back-to-back weekends was like 2004. So a long time ago, 16 years ago. I think people underestimate how physically and emotionally draining it is to be able to pick yourself up for a game like Australia, down New Zealand, and then repeat it again. And that repeated efforts, it just is what makes a World Cup so unique, that you have to be at your very best for six, seven weeks and be able to repeat that level of performance. And they got caught short. You know, Eddie said he could have made changes. And, and I don't think that's actually down to ability. I think that's down to the energy within the squad, just to try and freshen it up. Um, and it was, it was devastating, of course. I'd have loved to have seen England win the World Cup. We all would have. But there's not many human beings in the world that aren't happy for what South Africa are able to achieve. And we've all seen the videos and pictures of them going home and see her bringing hope to that nation so I think we fully understand that sport can sometimes have a bigger meaning and I think it was Nelson Mandela sport has the ability to to change and unite the world and in that moment that's exactly what they did mm. and obviously just looking at the World Cup on a whole you went out to Japan just before it started and just how well did they do because from a fan's perspective back at home it just looked unbelievable yeah it was amazing I was lucky enough I was out for about a month and I've been to Japan a couple of times previously in the year, but um, 
it was uh, it was a bit of a risk, I think, for World Rugby to go there. Um, it was the first time Rugby World Cup's been been held in Asia, um, but it's definitely going back. It's most definitely going back. Japan knows how to host a party, how to put on a tournament. We've had they've had the Olympics, they've had the Football World Cup, so this was just going to be another challenge for them. But as a country in itself, one of the most unique, remarkable, humbling places I've ever been to, the people. And it's almost cliche whenever you go on holiday, what did you like about it? You like, oh, it's the people. But generally, it was the people that made it. Um, I think their mantra was, um, um, although we don't know rugby, we still love your sport. Or so words to that effect. And, and that's exactly how it was demonstrated. Every game was sold out. Their behaviour was just impeccable. Every stadium at the end of a match was um, totally clean. I was at the game, Scotland against Japan, 24 hours after Super Typhoon. And it was an emotional day, really emotional, because fair play, there's not many nations in the world that can put on a fixture after the deadliest typhoon they've seen in a quarter of a century, and they did. Japan obviously went and won the game, created history. I remember leaving the stadium, there was this huge queue and I wondered what it was for. And you can imagine as a, as a nation how emotionally charged they were. And the queue was for people queuing up to recycle the stuff they had in the stands. So whether it was burgers or whatever, polystyrene, whatever, they still had that calmness, coolness and thought of mind and respect for their own community to queue up and put things in the bin. And that was a humbling moment. It might sound like a minor moment, but humbling. We've all been to football stadiums, rugby stadiums, you buy a burger, hot dog, whatever. Chuck it on the floor, because someone else will pick it up. But their respect for themselves and for how they're viewed as a nation, I just thought was truly remarkable. But mm -hmm. yeah, just one of the most memorable rugby World Cups I think the world's ever seen. Yeah, it's really impressive to see how the Japanese fans just got behind them because I think that Scotland game, 52% of the population watched it. If you look at the top league crowds at the moment, they're all packed, especially when you compare it to, I guess, Super Rugby or something where it's a bit more empty. It's really impressive. Yeah, in terms of like ratings and considering Japan aren't a, a rugby nation, had a look back at this and I think it was a couple of years ago, England against Wales got like 10.8 million viewers. Well, whoa, smashing it. Go that Scotland and Japan game, I think 15 million people watched yeah. that match. Mm. 50 million people. Like, that's remarkable. Look at the population of England. <laughs> Almost everyone's at home watching rugby. So there's something really powerful there, um, something which needs to be tapped into. And I just, I think Japan are an incredible example of what decent governance decent amounts of consistent funding and coaching can do for a country like that. And there are other tier two nations that could do with that level of support if governed and consistently funded. Because we go back to, you can watch previous World Cups, they get hammered by 100 points. Within a, a decade, a few World Cup cycles, they're in a quarterfinals of World Cup. So mm -hmm. if we're to expand and spread the rugby world, spread across the rugby world, then... You know, I think we, we've only got to look at Japan as an example to see how, how, how far we can really grow. Yeah. So I guess Ben Youngs is coming towards the end of his career. Who do you think should be his natural replacement at nine for England? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, good question. I think there's a lot of candidates. Um, someone like Alex Mitchell, of course, is like highly thought of. Um, and I think he's at the right club. Um, Chris Boyd is an ex exceptional coach and I think they play a style of rugby that will help um, the, the, the way which Alex Mitchell plays. Um, someone like Jack Maunder got an opportunity in Argentina in 2017, he's kind of slipped off the radar. I think he has another great opportunity. So I think there are a few candidates out there. They're the two most obvious ones to me. Dan Robson's another one. Um, I think there's life still left in Danny Care, but if we're looking at like long-term future, um, I think they're probably the two which are top of my list at the moment. Um, but it'll be interesting to see as and when Eddie gives these guys an opportunity because outside of Ben Young's 
Oh, Ben Spencer. Sorry, how can I ignore Ben Spencer? He's just signed for Bath as well. He played in a World Cup final. Um, but it'll be interesting to see as and when Eddie starts giving them opportunities. We're, we're not that long, or we're not that far away from the next World Cup in, in France. We know experience is really key. Um, so it'll be good to see what his squad looks like come the Six Nations 2021. Who would mm. you guys put in? Is there anyone I've not mentioned? No, I think you've named two yeah. who definitely I was thinking towards. What, a, what about um, Ben Curry? Eddie Jones's wild thoughts. Um, I think Steve Diamond was asked that question and I, I don't think he considers Ben Curry as a number nine at all. I think he's an exceptional um, back row player, but I, I just don't think we necessarily need to be pushing people that overtly out of their position to discover something which I think we have we we have plenty of. Mm. And so looking forward to 2023, how good a chance do you think England do have? Because obviously the likes of France are going to be insanely strong at home while South Africa is still a very young side. It's going to be an unbelievable yeah. yeah, the age profile of this England team is, is, is really exciting. Um, but I'm looking... Of course, we're looking at the next generation. Um, I think we have a huge opportunity. Of course we do. And there is no excuse as to why we shouldn't. We've got the largest play pool in the world. We have an extremely strong Gallagher Premiership. I think it's the best um, league in the world. And yeah, I'm slightly biased on that. But yeah, I think we have a great opportunity. But France said they've been a sleeping giant for a long time. And you look at some of their superstars already. I mean, the large majority of their squad is not under 25, yeah. late 20s, coming together now. We've already seen the automatic impact that Sean Edwards has had on them, not just tactically, but psychologically. And they're starting to build some elements of consistency. If they can keep their discipline, they're a match for any team in the world. They just are. Um, they got far too, I mean, their discipline during the Six Nations, poor yellow cards, red cards. Um, but in terms of talent, it's undeniable the opportunity they have. And, you know, they love their rugby and home advantage has to tell. It didn't for us in 2015, <laughs> unfortunately. But I don't, I think it could be quite a big factor. Um, mm. I, I, I really do. Um, but yeah, for England, I think we always pose a threat, always have a good opportunity. So uh, I'm, I'm very much encouraged by what, I've, what I saw in the World Cup and what I've seen just recently in, in the Six Nations. Yeah. yeah, I guess moving on to Lions Tour next year, South Africa. Who would you yeah. have in your starting 15? This, it's, an, it's an impossible question, but <laughs> I've, I've, like, given, I've given it a good crack. Um, some of this is based purely on what I think. I interviewed Warren Gatland in November and I asked him to pick five players who he thinks would definitely be in the team. And of course, I, I haven't ignored those as well. So I've had a bit of guidance. But at 15, I've got... I mean, I'm, I'm struggling. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll start with the forwards. We'll move on to the more exciting players. Um, Rory Sutherland. Uh, at Lucid, I think what the World Cup final showed us is that you have to have a good set piece, especially when you're playing away from home. South African, South African rugby will always look like South African rugby. It's physical, it's dominant, and it starts a set piece. So I've gone for who I think is a, a fantastic technician. This is a winger talking about scrums, by the way, but there we are. So I've gone for Roy Sutherland at Lucid. Jamie George, just the best line-out technician I think probably world rugby, I really do. Um, he offers a huge amount of his experience in previous tour. Um, I think we'll put him in good stead. Um, he's a fan favourite. Warren Gatlin loves him as well. Uh, Carl Sinclair, I just think on his day, and he proved it in the World Cup, he's one of the best tight heads in the world. Um, and was a massive loss in that final. Four and five, second row partnership that Europe wants to see, Maro, Itoje, and James Ryan. I just think you have all bases covered. <laughs> like, two young, 
physical specimen with huge intellect and energy um, is equally destructive in defense as that are massive operators in attack. So I think that partnership is, can compete against the very best in the world and they're going to have to be that. At any point, let me know if you agree, disagree. <laughs> or, so far, or, I think you hit now on the head. Yeah. Okay. Uh, back row. Slightly struggled here. Um, I've got Tom Curry at seven. Right. Yeah. I'm just not even having a conversation about mm -hmm. it. Like Tom Curry, now At six, I've got Aaron Wainwright or Jamie Ritchie. I think speaking to Gats, he thinks he's got the potential to be one of the best players in the world and has mm -hmm. severe X factor. And Jamie Ritchie, I'm just forever impressed with him. I think he's a phenomenal player. I thought he had a really good World Cup. And whenever I watch Scotland play, one of their most outstanding features of their game is their back row. Um, I completely agree with those two, but we've seen how well Curry and Underhill work together. Do you not think they, that those who know each other's game? Yeah, but then, I, but then I kind of... And Tom Curry's games developed massively in this last year, playing out position at eight in terms mm. of what he does in attack. Okay. He isn't just a threat in defence anymore. I think he's exceptional. So we're just, try, just trying to find a balance. And I think with Wainwright and Ritchie and looking at South African opposition, having someone like Peter Steph Dutoy in the back row, you've effectively got another lock. And that aerial battle at set piece is going to be huge. Yeah. And Wainwright is, is that option. So as much as I think it's important to select a team which you think is very best, you've, got to have just one eye on the opposition of what they do. But I, I definitely take your point about Underhill. If he wasn't to be on the tour, it'd be, it'd be tough. Um, I've actually not mentioned Hamish Watson. And that's almost really poor on my point because I think he's unbelievable. Unbelievable talent. It's just where, where do you fit him in? Um, if everyone's fit and on form, Billy Villapone is my number eight. But he hasn't been fit and on form for a little while. So CJ Stander is my is, is, is my is my option. Um, um, I think quite clearly someone that knows African rugby pretty well. Um, and just what he brings, his work rate, I think is just unbelievable. Um, who's your eggs? I think Stander's hard to ignore given his form in he performs at every six nations. He's up yeah. there with the man of the matches and yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can't say anyone. Um, at nine, I've got Gareth Davies. How does that sit with you? Connemara. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, you know, he's got seven tour caps for his country. Like he's a brilliant player. Um, huge amount of experience. I just. I love the energy Gareth Davies brings. I love his unpredictability. I look at Safkin's number nine, mm. Faf de Klerk, and he's an utter nuisance, like <laughs> an utter nuisance. And that aspect of playing nine is something which is so undervalued. Um, we saw, I mean, Gareth Davies has now been this like hovering or like roaming king in defence where he reads the game really well, picks off these intercepts. And that I think you need a combative number nine to go up against someone like Faf. And that's not saying Connemari can't do that because mm. his track record is, is, you can put that up against anyone's in the world and he'll stand the test of that. Um, I can't ignore Connemari, but I've just gone for Gareth Davies just on his perhaps physical edge. The other reason I say that is it depends who you've got at 10. Because if you're playing Sexton at 10 and Farrell at 12 and having Connemari at 9, there's obvious advantages. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. So let's we'll get on to tennis as well for that case. Um, and there will be discrepancies in this. So this is my starting team. Okay. And my starting back line won't finish this way for sure. Mm. Um, I've got Owen Farrell as my 10. Thoughts? Yeah, I think probably will, most likely will be that in South Connection. Love to see Finn Russell though. Oh, mate. He's here in bold. <laughs> <laughs> Get on the pitch and just just do your thing. Like he's mm. superb. But then 
Dan, depending on what style of rugby you want to play, Dan Bigger just can never be ignored. His performance away at England in the last Six Nations where I wasn't even sure, I don't think his teammates were sure whether he was going to play. I just thought it was remarkable. He was playing on half a leg, scored a try, Wales in a game which everyone predicted they would lose and they did lose, but by three points, no one saw that margin. Dan Bigger's a test match warrior that just can't ever be ignored. But I'm a huge fan of Finn Russell. I love the dude. I think he's, I think he's class. Um, got Manu Tulangi at 12. Thoughts on that? That's what I like. He's got a 13. Who's he pairing with? Gary Ringrose. Yeah, I can see that being quite a it's very powerful 12, 13. Yeah. But I guess if you look at the South African back line, you can see them definitely poking holes. Yeah, potentially. Um, who have you got in the centres? Depends, because I'd love to have Finn Russell at 10, Farrow at 12. And then if you put, you could either put Tualangi or Bandiaki at 13. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, I've got one, two, three, four, five wingers to pick on two wings, I've got it. So I, yeah, it's it 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 Jesus, it, it, tough. Um, but yeah, I, I just like the combination of Manu and Gary Ringrose. I think Gary Ringrose actually an underrated defender. I think he reads the game really well. Jonathan Joseph, Jonathan Joseph, I think's probably the best defensive thirteen in Britain Ireland. Is so undervalued. His work rate and yeah. um, spatial awareness, I think, is phenomenal. He will never be someone who's topping the charts for his tackles because he puts himself in positions whereby him just being in spaces actually then dictates the attack as to where they should go. Um, but yeah, I, I just quite like that. You know, you've got the obvious threats of Manu, and if Manu does what Manu does so well, then I want someone in that 13 channel to exploit space and time. Yeah. And Gary Ringrose does that pretty well. But anyway, my wings. I've got nailed on the right wing, Johnny May. Fast track. Um, he's probably got one of the most all-rounded games um, in world rugby's wing. I, I think he's I think he's brilliant. However, that means I have got four wings on the left wing. <laughs> Um, I've got Anthony Watson, Elliot Daly, Josh Adams, and Stockdale. I think Josh Adams would be getting the nod from me because I think Watson would be on the bench for me because he can cover fullback as well. So then yeah, see, of the five want. players, I got Gats to pick. Anthony Watson was, I think, the first player he picked. Really? <laughs> That's a surprise. That's really interesting. Yeah, I just. That's why it's so difficult. But then Elliot Daly at altitude, just knocking balls over from 60 metres. And we know how tight these test matches can be. Yeah. Hard to ignore. Josh Adams, the top try scorer at the last World Cup. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's the, he might be the first player to be top try scorer in the Premiership at Junior World Cup and Senior Men's World Cup. Like he scores tries, um, and Jacob Stockdale, we just know what he can do, but probably not shown his optimum form in the last year. Um, so I don't know who have you got on the wings. I agree with May. Um, yeah, I think Josh Adams. Yeah. Matt. Well, all I know is just going to be a match up with Chesley and Colby and Mapimpi on the other wings. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> It's going to be so good. Um, and then at fullback, I'd happily start Watson at fullback if, and have Adams and May on the wings. But obviously, sure. Stuart, Stuart Hogg's going to be. It's hard to leave him out. Yeah, I just think he's been really unfortunate. Um, could have had way more game time in New Zealand if not for that unfortunate injury. But then Liam Williams, hell of a player. 
stack of so many options. He's like hell of a player. You know, in terms of one of the best tries we've ever seen from the Lions, he was the catalyst. He instigated yeah. it. Yeah. Just broke a couple of ankles, counter-attack, and then Sean O'Brien scored like. Good luck, Warren. <laughs> yeah, there's... I mean, if you think you've got four world-class tens and realistically he's only going to take three, so someone's going to get, not even going to make the plane. What three would you have? <laughs> Farrell and Russell, definitely. Okay. And then between Bigger or Sexton. I'd take Bigger. What about Ford? Oh, <laughs> clearly for right. my I think Ford's been the best England player in the last year. Yeah. I genuinely don't know. It's not my decision to make, luckily. <laughs> it's nuts, isn't it? It's ridiculous. Same with the wings. Yeah. It's crazy. But then, yeah. isn't it great we can have this conversation? Yeah, going, it's better than Paddis and, oh, is he good enough? Or is he good enough? Like, yeah. I think around. the health of Britain and Ireland is the fact that the, the starting team's just not obvious. In certain yeah. positions, I don't think there's going to be a debate, but... You know, when you've got a load of players in brackets, and I'm mentioning leaving out high-class players, that's that's a good place to be in. But that's what makes the British and Irish Lions so special. It is the most exclusive rugby club in the world, mm. and it has to remain that. So, yeah, I've given you about thirty-five names, <laughs> so I'm not really answering this question. <laughs> Ugo, thank you so much. That's that was amazing. Yeah, no yeah, problem it's at been all. Unbelievable. Really enjoyable. Yeah, I was yeah, special cool. to that last bit. I really love that. And then yeah. can I just thank thank you from half me and Matt and also from all our listeners. And can I thank all our listeners for tuning in again and that we will see them all very soon. Thanks, yeah. guys. Nice one. Cheers. Take it easy, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.